Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. This week, we continue our series on the Fantastic Family with our new message, How Many Times is Enough? If you have your Bible, you can mark your spot there in Matthew chapter 18. We'll get there here directly. But we've been talking about the Fantastic Family, and we've, we've begun with the supposition uh, it's true, by the way. The Bible says in Psalm 127, the first part of verse number one, it says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And uh, since the beginning of May, we've been discussing some biblical solutions to many of the problems that we actually face within the family unit. And certainly, we have said and kind of discussed it that the family is under attack. Like never before, we see the family under attack and And uh, I've been talking about the fantastic family because I believe that biblically it is possible for us to have and enjoy the fantastic family. I would encourage you that if you've missed any of the messages in this series, uh, that you visit our website. You can go there and listen to the resources that are there and get caught up with the the messages. Or if you have the ability, you can go out and uh, sign up for our podcast and you can uh, listen to the messages at any time in your car as you're on the way to work or whatnot and get caught up. I believe these messages are being encouragement, at least I pray they would be. Uh, and so we'll not go over what we've talked about over the past month plus, uh, but I just want to go ahead at this point this morning, dig into a topic that I really believe that all of us are going to be able to benefit from in some form, shape, or otherwise Uh, But to be honest, the topic that I want to talk to you about this morning is probably one of the most challenging and most complicated uh, commands that we find in Scripture. It really is. It's probably one of the most complicated and and really challenging commands we find in Scripture. And uh, this morning I'm talking to you, I want to talk to you about this topic of forgiveness. And when I just said the word, everybody in your heart, if you're covered with the same stuff that I'm covered with, you know that you need to do better in this area of forgiveness. Not a person in this room has mastered forgiveness. Every one of us need to do better. And so uh, I think in order for us to really know where we're headed this morning, we must begin with a proper understanding of what we're really talking about when it comes to forgiveness. So I want to begin, if the guys, if you'll put it up, a basic definition of the word forgive. Now I know some of you a few weeks ago you took screenshots, that's fine. Here's the basic de- definition of the word forgive from um, Webster's New World Dictionary. It says to give up resentment against or the desire to punish, to pardon an offense or an offender, and then number two, to cancel a debt. Look at it again. To give up resentment That's kind of difficult, isn't it? (laughs) Sometimes to give up resentment. To give up resentment against or the desire, probably that's more difficult, more challenging sometimes, is that desire, that innate desire that we have to punish someone. I will punish this person for what they said, what they did, or what they didn't do. Uh, The idea of forgiving is to pardon an offense or an offender or to cancel a debt. The idea of just wiping the debt clean, and, and so uh, I hopefully we'll be able to see some things this morning from Scripture, but if you're a note taker, I want to just begin with a couple of things that hopefully will be beneficial to us all, because I think it's uh, important uh, that we understand that our model, our model of forgiveness is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself. He's the very model of forgiveness. You say, how do I model my life? How do I exercise forgiveness in the family? Whether it be inside or outside of the home, how do I actually put on this idea, this teaching or this command of forgiveness? Well, we have to look to our model. I remember as a little boy, uh, and I don't see many of them anymore. We used to go to uh, Kresge's and they would have a, uh, 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 in the toy section was uh, uh, models. And you would buy these models, plastic models, and you would buy modeling glue, and you would buy a, a little knife to make sure you could get all the rough edges off and everything. And, and we would actually, watch this, we would actually follow the directions. 
Men are the worst about that. We're like, oh, I know how to put it together. <laughs> and then we got five extra parts. We don't know where those parts go, but we, we got it together. We actually would follow the directions on how to put the model together. Jesus Christ himself is the model for you and I in this area of forgiveness. We should follow the model and the directions that he sets forth. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 10 and 11, it says, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Now, I love that word propitiation. And if you don't read the King James, you're like, I hate the word propitiation. What does that mean? It means expiator. And you're saying, great, that helps me none. We went from propitiation, propitiation to expiator. What does that mean? It means he was the atonement. To atone. To atone is what it means. It says here that here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, notice verse 11, it's really important. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Notice the words there in verse number 11. Right over here, it says, we ought. That means, what that means for you and I is that if Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the expiator, the atonement for our sins, and because we recognize and receive that forgiveness of sins, verse 11 says, if God so loved us in that way that Jesus Christ became our expiator, he became the atonement for you and I, it says, we ought also to love one another. The word we ought is old-fashioned for there's a reasonable expectation. There is a reasonable expectation that we would love one another. And yet, many times, forgiveness fails because we don't exercise that biblical love the way that we ought to. In Colossians chapter 2, notice what the Bible says in verse 13 and 14. It says, and, and this is the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the saints at Colossae, and he says this, he says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, that word quickened means he made you alive, made you alive together with him, having, notice what he did, having forgiven, and that word forgiven there means he's pardoned you, he's rescued you, he's delivered you from all your trespasses. Verse 14 it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So notice what the Bible says here in verse 14. That phrase, blotting out, it means that he obliterated it. He took your sin, he took my sin, he smeared it out, he wiped it away, he obliterated it, if you please. And then if you look at the end of the verse, it says he took it out of the way. Just as a ship sails to sea, Jesus Christ laid upon him the sin of the world and he sailed to sea. He took it away. He carried it away. That's what he's done with our sin in forgiveness. I'm glad you said amen because I didn't want to have to repeat that. <laughs> he carried it away. I'm so thankful that he as a ship weighing the sea placed upon his sinless body the sin of the world and he carried it away he took it away he took it out of the way and when did he do it when he nailed it to the cross he nailed it to the cross so that you and I don't have to in Colossians chapter 1 just before this the apostle Paul says in verse number 14 in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins he's saying even the pardon or the deliverance of sin guys you say why am I focusing on all of this information if you want to talk to us about forgiving in the family because it's important that we understand our model of forgiveness there is no way that I will ever forgive my wife there's no way that I will ever forgive my children there's no way that I will ever forgive my neighbor and on and on and on unless I properly understand where forgiveness comes from, where it originates from. He is our model, Jesus Christ, of forgiveness. In Romans chapter 3, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and I'm afraid that we've done it in injustice by just quoting Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even Baptist preachers like to quote that, right? 
But we really need to look at beginning in verse number 21. Notice what the Bible says in following. It says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Notice what verse 24 says. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption. That word redemption means the ransom that was paid in full through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse number 25. Whom God has set forth. There it is again. Whom God has set forth to be the propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission or the canceling of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Now I want you to notice again, verse 25, that word propitiation. You see, this is a reference back to Leviticus chapter 16 where they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Implication time, guys. When Jesus Christ himself shed his blood for the remission of my sins, for the remission of your sins, for the remission of sins of all the world, to those that believe, you know what he did? He became our mercy seat once and for all. He doesn't have to die every day. He did it once and for all. He became your mercy seat. He became my mercy seat. I'm so thankful for that. In 1 John chapter 2, you got to see this before we get to where we really want to go. In 1 John chapter 2, notice what verse number 1 and 2 says. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's our advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse number 2, here we go again. I always tell people this all the time. You want to look at a commentary? Look at the Bible, because the Bible is the greatest commentary on itself. Over and over it confirms itself. Verse number 2, and he is the propitiation, the expiator, the atonement for our sins. And notice what verse 2 says. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, it's available to all nations. When Jesus Christ died, he died for the sins of the whole world. He made it available to whomsoever will. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that, you know, I'm blessed to have been born in the United States of America. But had I been born, had I been born in Columbia, South America, I could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Had I been born in, the, in, the, uh, in Russia or Ukraine or any other place in the world, in Wales and, and, and on and on, I could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. God's work is not done. We must continue to share the good news with those who have never heard. The implications of our sin and forgiveness are seen. Think about it this way. Adam, his sin in the Garden of Eden, his sin was imputed to each and every one of the human race. We know that. You can read Romans chapter 5, verse number 10. Wherefore by one man's sin entered into the world, and death upon man. And so death passed upon all, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following. We see his sin was imputed. By the way, you say, what does this word impute mean? It means it is counted to my account. You say, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. I used to say that an awful lot as a kid. I remember being number four out of five boys. It's not fair that I'm wearing hand-me-downs. Does anybody ever wear hand-me-downs anymore? This has been like something that I've been thinking about lately. You see, because as number four out of five boys, my jeans were covered with patches. I mean, my mom was the queen of iron-on patches. I mean, I had patches on my knees. This is crazy because my brothers, they didn't, can they didn't carry uh, cans of snuff in their pocket, but their back pockets even wore out. I mean, I had, I had patches all over. I wore 
my older brother's tennis shoes. If they could still be worn, I was wearing them. It was a, it was a different time then. I don't know. That's just a sidebar thought. Does anybody wear hand-me-downs anymore? Yes. <laughs> Two people. Uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord. Here's the thing. Adam's sin was imputed to the human race, vis-a-vis me. Because he sinned, I too was a sinner. Now here's the really cool part for us, the implications of sin and forgiveness. You see, the penalty of sin was imputed on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was sinless, spotless Lamb of God, he took upon him all the sin of the world. He took upon him God's full cup of his wrath for you and for me. Jesus, through his vicarious substitutional death, listen, he paid for, he removed the penalty of sin that you and I were under. And supernaturally, now what has happened is for all those who have called out upon the name of the Lord, now that imputation of sin is gone, and Jesus, through his vicarious substitutional death, imputes or places to our account his righteousness. Not my righteousness, his righteousness. See the cool thing? Adam, with Adam, he imputed his sinfulness to me. But when Jesus Christ, the righteous, came, he imputed his righteousness to me. What a bonus when we think about the implication of sin and forgiveness. Listen, nothing more, nothing less. This is what forgiveness of sin really looks like. And so I ask the question, why would God, through Jesus Christ, his only son, offer forgiveness? Why would he offer forgiveness? And the more I study it and the older I get, I come back with a one-word answer. Love. Isn't that what the Bible says? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that what the Bible also says when we look at Romans uh, 5, 8? But God commendeth or proved his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse number 6 of that same passage, the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. He died for the ungodly. You say, what is all this fuss about? You'll never, ever, ever grasp or be able to offer forgiveness until you really understand forgiveness and where it comes from. The model of our forgiveness is Jesus Christ. Look back at what the Bible says again. I hate to go backwards, but look back at what it says again in 1 John chapter 2. The difference this time is I want us to look at what verses 3 and 4 actually say as well. You see, because verse 1 and 2 are great, but we need to continue on in the text. The Bible says again, my little children, these things that I write unto you, that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse number 3, and hereby we do know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. Hang on to that thought, I'm coming back. Verse number 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. I'm sorry to be the bearer of the bad news in this text. It's a hard saying. But the Bible says that he that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Do you remember when we read 1 John chapter 4, verse 11? I said there was a reasonable expectation where it says, so ought ye to love one another. The expectation because of Christ's forgiveness in our life, setting forth that model of forgiveness, the expectation is that you and I love one another. Jesus himself taught his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. You remember in John chapter 13, after he washed the disciples' feet, he gave them an example, and then he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, and if you love one another, the world, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Keeping his commandments are pretty important. 
What does that have to do, Pastor, with forgiveness? I'm glad you asked. Because in Mark chapter 11, and we could go all over the place, but just for the sake of time, in Mark chapter 11 and then Luke chapter 17, we see a couple of things. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus speaking really to Pharisees who were real good about standing up when they prayed. You remember the Bible says they stood up to pray for men to see them. They wanted people to take notice of what they were doing. Well, in Mark chapter 11, notice what the Bible says. Jesus says this in verse 25 and 26. He says, and when ye stand praying, what was the first thing he says? The very first thing, the very first command he gives. When you stand praying, forgive if, any, if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. But notice, but if you do not forgive, but if you do not forgive, Neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive you your trespasses. Uh-oh. See, verse 25 says, when you stand praying, forgive. That word forgive there in the Greek actually means to lay aside, to forsake, to omit, to put it away. What did Jesus do? He blotted out our sins. He carried away as a ship weighing the sea, never to return anymore. And the really cool part about uh, the Bible saying that God cast our sins into the depths of the sea is if you read, and that's in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, if you go to Revelation 21, you find out what God's going to do with that sea. He does away with it. In Revelation 21, woo, that's exciting. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible says there'll be no more sea. We'll not even be able to look upon it. Our God takes our sin and he casts it in the depths of the sea. And when he creates the new heaven and the new earth, he says, guess what? There's going to be no more sea. No more remembrance. Now, we understand we'll be on a spiritual side of things then. We won't be on a physical side where we could be covered with the flesh anymore. But how cool is it that the same God who offers forgiveness says, I'm going to do away with that sea where I cast your sins. Soon and very soon. Soon and very soon. Oh, it's so important that we understand this idea of forgiveness. But in this, in this verse, the, this passage in Mark chapter 11, what you see is repentance is not the key. See, he says, when you stand praying, forgive. See, our heart's the key, not repentance. The idea is if we stand up to pray, the, the, the picture was that if these Pharisees were standing up in the temple to pray, that as they pray, if somebody came into their mind and in their heart, they immediately remembered somebody that they had an aggravation against, ought against, or there was somebody that they were harboring bitterness against or anger against. Whatever the case was, Jesus said, forgive. That was the first thing he said to do when you stand up to pray, forgive. Now, you say, but what about repentance? Where does that come in? In Luke chapter 17, repentance is key. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 3 and 4. He says, take heed to yourselves. And when, when the Bible gives you this illustration of taking heed to yourselves, what it is essentially saying is pay attention. Pay attention, he says. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. That word rebuke means to admonish, to correct to instruct. He says, rebuke him, and if he repent, see, forgiveness is, uh, repentance is a key here, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day again unto thee, say, comes unto you saying, I repent, Jesus says, thou shalt forgive him. Thou shalt forgive him, which is what takes us to Matthew chapter 18. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 18, we need to remember, though, guys, I said this probably three, four weeks ago. Um, maybe, it's been, maybe it's been longer. I, I kind of lose track of time. But we need to remember that God's grace gives us what we don't deserve. The grace of God actually gives us what we don't deserve. And when we think of God's mercy, God's mercy is where he doesn't give us what we do deserve. His mercy is shown in that he does not require payment for all our sins because Jesus Christ the righteous took care of it for us. His grace is that love that has been extended to us. And because we've been forgiven, and only because we've been forgiven, I might add, 
we are able to forgive others inside and outside of the family unit. If you have and I have believed in and trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin and salvation, then we should be exercising biblical forgiveness. Let's notice Matthew chapter 18. Look at verse 21, very familiar, a couple of verses of scripture, but I want to read on because Jesus gives us a story here. In verse 21, the Bible says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, Say I unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. By the way, the king will take account of his servants one day. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Not my word, God's word. He will take an account. This is a parable, so let's be careful. It's a biblical truth thrown alongside of another story with a greater spiritual meaning, okay? And so let's continue reading on. King which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon or account, one was brought to him which owed him 10,000 talents. I will not go through the exercise, but I can tell you that if we were to do the exercises, this debt of 10,000 talents would have never been able to be paid by this man. He would have had to work. Some have suggested he would have had to live and work for 200,000 years to pay that debt off. So we'll not do the math and, and try and figure it out, but I just want you to know this is a debt This was probably the largest sum of money that uh, was even understandable at their time. And Jesus uses this to to make a point. Brought the man to him, owing him 10,000 talents. Verse 25, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. I can tell you that is millions of dollars of indifference. Found him that owed him a hundred pence and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. But he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt. Because thou desiredst of me. Should not thou have also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, Jesus says, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Go back to verse 21. I want you to see just a couple of things, and then we're going to wrap this up today. Peter's essentially asking our title question today. He's essentially saying, how many times is enough? You see, because Jewish law taught that they were to forgive one another three times, but not a fourth. So Peter is actually doubling it. A lot of people condemn Peter. But Peter is actually doubling it. He's saying, if we double what we've been instructed, is that enough? I'm going to double it, Lord. And Jesus says, not enough. Not enough. You see, in verse number 22, Jesus suggests that our forgiveness for others should never, ever be limited. And because you and I are on this side of his story, we know that forgiveness is a matter of the heart and of the spirit, not of the mind. You see, because a mind likes to do what? We like to keep score. We like to keep track. We like to keep score of things. And so the mind is never where forgiveness is to come from. It's that spirit of forgiveness, the heart of forgiveness that never takes into account the wrongs done to it because it is based on the same spirit and the same compassion that led Jesus Christ to the cross 
of Calvary. The mind is never to where we are to deal with forgiveness. It is out of this spirit or this heart of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a thing or a quality, if you please, of the spirit. We know what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruits of the spirit, you know? And, and, and it says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Listen, these things, when we talk about love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and on and on, those things cannot be measured or quantified by some type of measuring cup. The fruit of the Spirit is unlimited. Unlimited love, unlimited joy, unlimited peace, unlimited long-suffering, unlimited temperance, and all this and on and on and goodness. It's unlimited because it's not my fruit, it's the Spirit's fruit. Do you see it? Do you understand this? When we're talking about things of the Spirit, in this parable, the Heavenly Father, God, is likened unto this king who takes account of his servants. And the Lord of this parable is just, but he's more than just being a just king. He's also a loving king. He's a compassionate king. He's obviously a very forgiving king to forgive this debt, which is, which is really inconceivable when we think about the Lord forgiving this debt. And yet, when I think about this parable, in the inconceivability of the Lord forgiving this debt, I'm reminded of the inconceivability of our God forgiving my debt. How inconceivable. I mean, it's a wonderful, it's a, it, 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 it's a wonderful convenience. We talked about convenient Christianity in April. It's a wonderful convenience, but how inconceivable that God would forgive me. A sinner, undone, dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. How inconceivable is that? And yet the parable makes it very clear, the, 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 the picture here, that that's what our Lord does. Because he is loving, he is compassionate, he is forgiving. Listen, there's no doubt that forgiveness is costly. You know, when somebody sins, they create a debt. When somebody sins against you, they create a debt, do they not? And typically in our flesh, we want somebody to pay, don't we? I'm here to collect, sir. I'm here to collect, ma'am. We, we go in the kitchen sometimes, men, and we're ready for our wife to pay her sin debt. I got news for you. It's already been paid for. Did you catch that? It's already been paid for. We want to we wanna, uh, uh, have this, this idea of somebody coming to me, and yet I think we would do a better job if we reflected back on what Christ has already done for us. Instead of always looking to someone else, let's look back to Jesus. He's the model of forgiveness. God has only one solution for the problem of human sin. One solution for the problem of human sin. It's called forgiveness. That's the only solution God has, is forgiveness for the problem of, of human sin. Listen, biblically, the idea of forgiving means this. It means that we're to treat the offense as though it was never committed. We're to treat the, I know some of you are like, uh-uh, ain't happening today, ain't happening tomorrow, because that person has not come to me. I've not had the opportunity to rebuke them, as Luke 17 says, and therefore I will not forgive. Well, you forget that Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, when you pray, forgive. It ain't about that person coming to you. It ain't about what he or she needs to do. It's about what you and I need to do. We need to forgive. We need to offer grace. We need to remember the grace that's been shown to us. Oh, forgiveness is a most challenging, most complicated command, isn't it? See, forgiveness means that we're to treat the offense as though it was never committed. In other words, to declare that I or you will not harbor anger, malice, or any type of hatred, or treat the offender unkindly, but that you and I will do this. We will get out our shovel and we will bury it. Oh, we're real good at that, aren't we? I talk to people sometimes about forgiveness. I tell them forgiveness is like a poker chip. You ever used forgiveness in your family like a poker chip? Hmm? We say, uh, hey, I'll forgive you. I forgive you, Maddie. 
and then we put it, put it in our pocket. And we move on through life. And then when Maddie does something, I say, hello, you remember? I own the chip on you. I own it on you. Hey, don't forget, I, you did it again. Isn't that what we do? We bring up bag, baggage. We bring up past hurts. We never offer forgiveness because we want to hang on to it. We think that we are somehow justified in holding on to that anger, holding on. To, that's called a power play, folks. That's not forgiveness. That's manipulation. That's not forgiveness. That's manipulation. We hold on to it, and we put it in there, and we puff out our chest. Look at me. I'm so righteous. I forgave you of your sin. I gave in. I did what Jesus wanted me to do. Thank you, Pastor. I'll have another. And then right when somebody does something wrong, we pull it back out and say, you owe me. How dare you talk to me? How dare you backbite against me? How dare you do that? I've often thought about getting a poker chip made with our church logo on one side and the simple word forgiveness on the back so that you could actually carry it to remind you never, ever, ever to use God's beautiful gift of forgiveness as some type of gimmick or toy in your game of life and in my game of life. Oh, forgiveness is unconditional. Listen, we need to bury it, not bring it up like it's some kind of poker chip in our life. Unfortunately, in this story, the servant, this is crazy, the servant in this parable represents somebody who actually professes to be something that he's not. He's not losing eternity. He's professing to be something he's not. See, Jesus gives the parable in, in this idea of the kingdom of heaven, but this guy, he's not connected to the king. He doesn't have a relationship with the king because if he did, he would exhibit love. He would exhibit compassion. He would exhibit forgiveness, but he's a false member, if you please. He has no compassion, no mercy, no forgiveness whatsoever. Listen, he's full of harsh anger and resentment. My God is not full of harsh anger and resentment. He's full of love and compassion. Yes, he is a just God, but he is full of love and compassion and mercy as well. Because the servant refused and failed to forgive, you know what the Bible said there at the end. He actually experiences his Lord's anger and justice. As sinners, we have been saved by grace. Our forgiveness, thank God, is free. Some have asked me over the years, Pastor, <laughs> is it? But they asked me this before I was a pastor. Hey, is it really possible to completely forgive people? I mean, uh, in fact, I had someone, I told them what I was speaking on yesterday, and they said, uh, someday I want to sit down with you and have a talk about uh, forgiveness versus forgetting. I said, sir, those are two different topics. And since I'm not God and since you're not God, I'm guessing we will have a hard time with forgetting. But forgiveness is to be offered unconditionally. In his book, Total Forgiveness, I like this, R.T. Kendall tells of a time when somebody who was very near and dear to him uh, hurt, hurt him greatly. He tells this story about how he was really hurt in his life and the anger that he felt. He felt so overwhelmed with this anger which I'm sure every one of us have experienced at some point in our life. And uh, at length, he talks with a faithful friend. He goes on in his book, and he's talking with a faithful friend about this anger that he has towards this other person. And after he pours out all the sordid details of what had been done to him, he pauses, waiting patiently for his friend to say, R.T., brother, you're right to feel so angry. What that person did to you is so awful. But as he waited, nothing was said. And so R.T., he starts telling the story again, but this time he starts adding more details of the story uh, to start adding more details so that his friend would really understand the gravity and the nature of his hurt. After listening to the, the details, the person told him, you must totally forgive this person. R.T. Kendall says that he was dumbfounded. So he, so he says, what do you mean? I have to forgive. He, the man interrupted him again and said, you have to totally forgive this person. You must totally forgive him, release him, and then and only then will you be set free to move beyond this situation. 
I think most people really, we know that we should forgive. And I think many people actually know what God's word has to say about forgiveness. But instead of exercising it, what we typically do is we fight the flesh. And we give in to the flesh that says, I will not be moved, I will not forgive. I'm going to hold this grudge. Because when I hold the grudge, I got the power. When I hold on to my anger, my wife understands that I have the upper hand. My husband understands who the queen of this place is. Our children understand who's in charge. My mom and dad know what they did. And I remind them every chance I get. I let mom and dad know what's going on when I feel like it. Sometimes in the workplace, we hold this over our bosses. Oh, I don't want to step on any toes. But sometimes we hold the chip over somebody sitting in the same sanctuary, worshiping the same God that forgave the same way. We hold that anger, that bitterness, that resentment. We don't even want to go speak to them. We don't ever want to offer that, that, that olive branch, if you please. And yet we think God's going to be honored in a place of worship where people have got aught with one another. No wonder, no wonder there's still empty pews in all of God's houses all across this country. People are watching. They want to know. We're, we're great at claiming forgiveness, not so good at giving it. I want to close this. I want to close our lesson with some excuses why we can't get over it. Why we can't offer forgiveness. Here's some excuses. Maybe you've heard them. <laughs> excuses like this. The person hurt me so bad, I just can't get over it. I want to let you know there's no attempt here to minimize your pain or hurt. We have all been hurt. We have all been through times of pain. And I would not want to minimize your hurt whatsoever. But for, let me just say this. Why would, if you've been hurt so badly, why would you want to live in the land of hurtfulness more than one second. More than one second. Don't live there. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Forgive the person. Move on. C.S. Lewis actually said this. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. Forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. How about this? It's not fair. It's not fair, Pastor Greg. I'm not sure it was fair for Christ to be placed on the cross, but he did it anyway. Listen, forgiveness has nothing to do with being fair. It's all based on grace and mercy. What about this? I have to heal first. You got to give me some space. I need some time. I, I need to heal first, and, and then I'll forgive. This is a myth. This is a myth, this idea of I've got to heal. Forgiveness is what brings healing. You're never going to heal until you forgive. Listen, I've told people a, long, a lot, all throughout the years, listen, until you forgive that person, that person is basically holding you hostage, remembering every time you see that person, you remember the anger, you remember the hurt, you remember uh, uh, the sinfulness that they committed towards you, and remember, if they committed it towards you, they committed it towards God first. And so, uh, this idea that I want to heal first is a problem when it comes to forgiveness. What about this? Uh, I want revenge which I said earlier is most likely the reason we never forgive, but we must trust that God has something to say about revenge. Listen, he's the one that's able to deal with it better than you and I. He can do a way better job of handling someone uh, and their accountability than you or I. What about this? In time I will heal. This too is a lie, as I just referred to. You ever been to Walmart? You ever been to Walmart about a year after somebody hurt you? And you see that person? What do you do? What do you do? Let's be honest. You go the other way. They're in the grocery section. I all of a sudden got to go to the pharmacy. And if you know Walmart, you know they're on opposite ends of the store. I'm going to the garden center. Oh, are you going to pick up some potting soil? No, I just don't want to see that person. Why? Because I just need time. That's a lie. That's a lie. What about this? Where's the justice? Where's my justice? I hate to be that guy. Our justice hung on that cross. He hung on that cross over 2,000 years ago. 
and took care of forgiveness once and for all. But we must offer it one to another. Listen, among other passages, Colossians chapter 3 makes it very clear, abundantly clear that forgiveness is not an option, it's an obligation. In verse number 12, the Bible says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So what are we to do? We're to forgive. And so if you want to take pictures of these screens, I'm going to throw some screens at you and then we're going to pray. You say, what does complete forgiveness look like? A friend of mine, I hope you can see it, a friend of mine shared this with me as a pastor of a church in Mason, Ohio. Uh, shared this list. I'm sure it's not exhaustive, uh, but he shared these ideas with me and I thought I'd share them with you. What, what complete forgiveness is, being aware of what someone has done and still forgiving them. What complete forgiveness is, choosing to forgive even when you don't feel like it, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Refusing to punish. Uh, what forgiveness is, it's being very cautious. Here's a big one, guys. Being very cautious in telling anybody about what somebody did. You want to know why? Because sometimes when we retell the story, you know what we do? Yeah, you guys know what we do. Uh, we make it sound ten times worse. Why? Because I want, I want your sympathy. I want you to hug on me and tell me I'm justified in my anger. And so I start adding parts of the story in that never even happened. You know, it's that old pro proverbial thing where I make a mountain out of a molehill. Being very cautious. By the way, retelling the story of a hurt can be used as a method of revenge. See, because if I tell Jared how Andy hurt me, and I start adding in inappropriate details, then Jared now has a little bit of anger against Andy because Andy hurt me. We use retelling the story. We like to run around being talebearers and telling our stories to people because we want sympathy instead of offering forgiveness. I'll get off of that. That, that could be a whole message in and of itself. Uh, what complete forgiveness is, it's demonstrating grace and mercy. Continue. Next slide. What is forgiveness? It's an issue of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the issues of life. Uh, it's the absence of bitterness. It's a demonstration of faith. By the way, faith obeys regardless of feelings, circumstances, or consequences. In Hebrews eleven six, for without faith it's impossible to please God. We have to have faith. And then it's following the example of Jesus Christ uh, that we see there. And if you want these, you can ask me and I'll send them to you. Uh, what complete forgiveness is not, very quickly... It is not an approval of what they did. It is not excusing what they did. It is not justifying what they did. It is not reconciliation. It is not reconciliation. Those are different. Reconciliation requires the participation of all parties involved. Forgiveness, vertically first, is that we express to God our willingness to forgive as soon as possible. As soon as we are breached, as soon as that trust is hurt, as soon as we have been uh, uh, attacked by somebody's sinfulness, anger, whatever the situation is, our forgiveness vertically ought to be immediately. When you pray, forgive to God. And then horizontally, forgiveness is experienced when the offender asks for it. We see that in Luke 17. Now, you say, do I wait till that person asks for forgiveness? Absolutely not. Relationally, you forgive you can have this idea of reconciliation and building up one another again, and they will have to rebuild the trust, obviously, but you can have that at that point. But immediately, the immediate response, because of what Christ did, should be to forgive. And then the last slide, please. What forgiveness is not, it's not denying what they did. It's not forgetting what they did, but simply choosing to forgive. It's not pretending we are not hurt. And it is not the removal of consequences. Like I said a few moments ago, God's much better at holding me accountable than my wife. He's much more able to hold her accountable than me. He is God. I am not. And so all that to say this. This is, by the way, this is not an exhaustive message on forgiveness. But I got a couple of things to say. The time to forgive is now. Not after you walk out the door. The time to forgive is now. Vertically, 
forgive now. Relationally, the opportunity is here. If you have aught with somebody in this room, whether it be your husband, your wife, your child, young people, if you got a problem with mom and dad, right now is the time to fix it. Now is the time to come before the throne of God's grace and say, God, please, please forgive me for my unforgiving spirit. God, I want to release this. I want to bury it. I want to treat it as though it never happened. And I want to uh, uh, allow myself to move forward. And so the time for forgiveness is now. It's a decision. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. And so let me ask, who do you need to forgive this morning? Do you need to forgive your husband? Do you need to forgive your wife? Do you need to forgive your children, your grandchildren? Uh, Maybe grandparents. Maybe young person, you need to forgive your grandpa or grandma. Maybe you need to forgive mom or dad. Maybe there's an aunt or an uncle that needs to be forgiven. Maybe there's somebody in the workplace that is not here today, but you can offer forgiveness today. Maybe there's a neighbor of yours that you need to forgive. Maybe there's somebody here in your church family that you need to forgive. I want to beg you, ask and grant it today. You say, well, I'm not sure I need to forgive anybody. Then let me ask you this question. Maybe you need to be the one that goes to someone and asks for forgiveness. Maybe there's someone in this room that you know you need to ask for their forgiveness. And yet day in and day out, you do this. You sweep it under the rug. You sweep it under the rug. And you never ask. I want to encourage you, don't let any more time slip away. Time is too precious. Someone has said this, and I close. This is great. I don't know who, who said this. Families that forgive know how to live. If we're going to grow, you must let it go. Families that forgive, oh, they know how to live. If you're going to grow, you got to let it grow. You got to let it go. I want to pray with you. And I want to ask you to do business with God as he leads you. By the way, you're sitting here and you've never asked God to forgive you of your sinfulness. Today is the perfect day to do that. Talking about forgiveness. I gave you the model of forgiveness. His name is Jesus. And so all the way around, whether you need forgiveness of sin, whether you need to offer forgiveness, and whether you need to ask for forgiveness, it's available Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.